Well, this morning I wonder uh, what state of mind you're in today, whether you're uh, just uh, happy to see the blue sky and enjoy a cold, crisp morning, or whether today you're full of anxieties and uh, cares. People do have lots of fears. People can be frightened of all sorts of things. Um, there's a number in my house that have an irrational fear for little insects with eight legs that run around. A shriek comes up in the house, and I valiantly go <laughs> with a piece of tissue and grab hold of that beastie and flush it away, and I'm the big man. But we have all sorts of fears and anxieties, don't we? Why do we fear often the wrong things? That's the question that uh, Barry Glasner asked in his book, The Culture of Fear, Why Americans Fear the Wrong Things. And the question could equally be asked of the British. For example, why do so many smokers fret about flying? You know, I mean, truth is, if you smoke, your, your, your life will be shortened on average by about five years, which is a much more significant danger than flying. And the terrifying thing for a smoker these days is you can't even smoke on the plane. Why do we fear terrorism uh, more than accidents that happen in our homes or while driving a car. Uh, more people die falling out of bed than through a terrorist accident in America, if you look at the stats, which is, you don't worry about getting out of bed, do you? Why do we fear the wrong things? Well, Barry in his book real, thinks that a major cause is, is this paranoia that is generated by the media. The media wants to get an audience, doesn't it? And uh, it wants to sell copy, it wants to sell advertising, and it knows what will keep us glued to the TV. And uh, it's not balanced reporting that gets us glued to the TV or reading the newspaper. It is the sensational headline. I mean, they love it. A, a cruise liner, half underwater, this is the stuff that newspapers rub their hands off. Look how awful this is. It is pretty awful, actually. If it, leads, if it bleeds, it leads is the, is the motto, isn't it? And so we get a distorted sense of reality uh, and we end up fearing the wrong things. That's what Barry Glasner says. And I, I think it's a good argument, but I think the analysis is not deep enough. The Bible says that we fear the wrong things because we are a godless society. We fear the wrong things because we are a godless people. And I want us to open our Bibles back up to Isaiah chapter 10. And you'll find that on page 695. Page 695. I'm going to read this final section from uh, chapter 10, verse 20, on the right-hand column. Isaiah chapter 10, page 695. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. 
Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty, says. O my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. The Lord Almighty will lash them with a whip as when he struck down Midian at the rock of Oreb. And he will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. In that day their burden will be lifted from your shoulders, their yoke from your neck. The yoke will be broken because you've grown so fat. They enter Ayeth, they pass through Migron, they store supplies at Michmash. They go over the pass and say, we will camp overnight at Geba. Ramah trembles, Gibeah of Saul flees. Cry out, O daughter of Galim, listen, O Lysha, uh, poor Anathoth. Madmena is in flight, the people of Gebim take cover. This day they will halt at Nob. They will shake their fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion at the hill of Jerusalem. See the Lord... The Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with a great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Let's keep your Bibles open. Let's just ask God once more for help. Father, we pray that you'd help us to look at these ancient uh, words written 800 years before the Lord Jesus that we may understand their meaning and that we may see your awesome majesty. Father, press upon us that you are the same God and that we should return to you and rely upon you. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So did you see uh, from chapter 10 verse 24 that... The main focus of Isaiah's ministry is to the people who live in Zion, the people who live in Jerusalem. They're referred to as Zion. Have a look at it again. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, O my people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you. There is the initial audience that Isaiah had in mind, the people of Jerusalem, 800 years before Jesus came, and he's saying to them, do not fear the Assyrians. Don't fear the Assyrians. Now, at their time, I would say that they had lots of reasons, good reasons, for fearing Assyria. Assyria was the superpower of the day. Assyria was a bloodthirsty, aggressive superpower that was just expanding and expanding, conquering nations. And they, um, when they conquered, they conquered. They came in. Uh, They killed thousands and thousands. They destroyed. They left cities absolutely trashed and its land absolutely uh, dominated. And they saw this in in their world politics as Assyria kept expanding and expanding. And you'd think as they heard news of all the corpses that were being left behind, that that was a reasonable source of fear and anxiety. But this is the message of Isaiah to the people of Jerusalem. 
Do not be afraid of the Assyrians. According to Isaiah, they were in danger of fearing the wrong things. And for them to just fear Assyria was to live with sort of a man-centered, godless perspective. And what Isaiah wants to give them, and I believe he wants to give us too, is instead of that, a God-centered view of history and of life. I don't pretend to know today uh, what God is accomplishing through all the current events, uh, the Euro debt crisis, um, the uprising in Syria, uh, the death of scientists in Iran and concerns over the nuclear program, the possibility of Scottish independence. There's all these great events, and I don't uh, pretend to tell you that I know what God is doing in this. Our history is different, but I can tell you this, that God has not changed. The God that we meet in this uh, book of Isaiah is the same God that is here today. And so what I want us to do is to look at these chapters and see what it tells us about God so that we can live not in a godless way, but in a God-centered way, reorientating our thinking and helping us to deal with our fears. And there are three things about God here that this passage tells us about. It tells us about God's anger, about God's sovereignty, and also about God's grace. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Firstly, let's think about God's anger. And this opening section from chapter 9, verse 8, gives us the reason why we should not fear Assyria. Isaiah says, don't fear Assyria, fear God. Because God's anger is relentlessly against sin. God's anger is relentlessly against sin. Did you notice that phrase over and over again? Four times. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. It's ominous. It's a chilling statement that the God of the universe is angry. Now, You could buy all the newspapers today, and not one of them will have this news story, that God is angry with sin. But let me tell you, it is the most significant story today. Amidst all the various concerns of people's anxiety, here's something that should be of the greatest cause of concern, that will never get mentioned at all, that there are things that cause the God of love to be angry. And his anger is being worked out in active judgment. Do you see what is being said there in 9 verse 12? God's hand is is stretched out not to bring blessing and comfort, but stretched out to bring punishment and discipline. There was a time when Israel was one whole nation, but in Isaiah's time, it had split into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom uh, referred to in this passage uh, with two names, Israel and Ephraim. And Isaiah is talking to the people of the south, and he's saying to them, look at what God is going to do to the north. Look what he's going to do to Ephraim. Look what he's going to do to the northern kingdom of Israel, and be warned. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. 
The Lord has sent a word, a message against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, the northern kingdom. So what is it that makes the God of the universe angry? Well, in verses 9 to 12, it is their proud self-confidence. All the people, verse 9, will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we'll rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we'll replace them with cedars. There's been some sort of disaster in the north, possibly an earthquake, and their response was, 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 was this, well, we're going to turn disaster into accomplishment by our own self-sufficient resources. Okay, there were mud walls that fell down. We're going to build with proper cut stone. There's been sycamore. That, that, now, we'll get rid of that, and we'll put in impressive cedars. And, and Isaiah's prophecy is saying, look, the kingdom of the north is just full of itself. It's got all big plans for its future, but it's a future that's a godless future. And any nation or any people who plan their lives in a proud, self-confident way and says, I'm going to make a name for myself, we're going to be great, and does that without any regard for God, well, this is what Isaiah has to say to us. God is relentlessly angry against such self-conceit and pride. His anger is relentless against that. Look at verse 11. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them. That was the king, Rezin. And has spurred their enemies on. God is raising up a mighty Assyria to move against the northern kingdom and its king. And all the nations around it, the Philistines and the Arameans, who once were allies of the king of the north, are going to turn on him and attack him. But God's anger will continue because they refuse to repent. See, God, this judgment of God has a purpose, has a point. And the, 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 the calamities that are going to fall upon the nation of Israel had this specific point, that the Lord is striking them that they would turn to him. Look at verse 13. But the people have not returned to him who struck them nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them, and those who are guided are led astray. The leaders are culpable, and the people, the people are culpable for following them. The leaders are leading in the wrong way, in a direction away from repentance towards God, away from that, and the people are just believing the lies. The prophets are prophesying lies, and the people are believing lies. This is what happens when a nation and a people are in rebellion against God. They'll refuse to listen to the correct diagnosis. They'll follow leaders who are, who are continuing to lead people in a godless direction. And, and fail to see the calamities that are hitting them are actually there to bring discipline and to bring people back to God. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Yet for all this, 
His anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Our anger uh, tends to be emotional, doesn't it? We just get a surge of sort of feeling angry and we lash out. We sort of verbally lash out at those around us. Um, and then it kind of dissipates and we've got to get calm again. And we think of God like that. But God is not like that. God sees sin and he is opposed to all rebellion and sin. It stirs his righteous anger. And it's not an emotional anger. It's not God is lashing out uh, uh, like an irritable dad who's had a long day and just wants to be left alone. His anger is settled and steady. And this people that continue in their rebellion and their godlessness, even though they're paying such a great price for their folly and their sin, his anger continues because they've still not repented. They've still not relented. And his, his judgment is, is seen not only in the use of outside agents like Assyria, but that, that, that he allows them to, he kind of hands them over to what they desire. He allows them to, to experience the full extent of their wickedness as evil spreads in the society. Look at verse 18. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. We have this view that um, to be really free people, we must throw off all shackles of authority. We must throw off God. We must be able to do whatever our hearts desire. We'll do whatever we want to do. And uh, we don't believe in good or bad anymore. It's whatever you want to do, whatever will do, most people come and good, and off you go. And the reality is that that sort of uh, corruption and wickedness is like a fire that eats away at society. We flourish when we come and recognize that God is king and trust and rely upon him. When we throw off God, we live in a society that is increasingly corrupted, Wicked, consuming itself. And, and these are really tough verses to read and think about. That the wrath of the Lord Almighty, by it, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. This is a very sober description, isn't it? And it's it's given us to shock us, to jolt us, to return to God in repentance. And for those who get rich through injustice and oppressing the poor, Isaiah warns that they'll stand before the God of justice. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. God's anger against sin is relentless. 
And Isaiah wants the southern kingdom of Judah and his people of Jerusalem to recognize this because all the sins that he's pointed to in the north were also present in their kingdom. And we, like Judah, should not be fooled into thinking that we can claim to be God's people and uh, live godless lives of unrepentant sin without facing consequences. It is a sober thing. It is a hard thing. It is an unwelcome message today to, to learn this, that God is angry against sin. But do you know what? It has a loving purpose. And that is to awaken us. Awaken us to reality. We, believe in a cult, we, we live in a culture that, that believes that God loves us just the way we are, uh, if he's there at all, and where churches uh, often teach that we can live any way we like. And in that view, God is no more frightening than Santa Claus. Might have a few less toys under the tree if we've been naughty. But it is essential that we come to terms with God's anger if we want to live in the real world. All around us is evidence of God's anger against sin. All around us. That we live in a world where there is death and suffering where there is uprising civil unrest are all evidences to us that God's anger is being revealed in the world today but the second thing we need to come to terms with as we consider the God who is there is not only that he is a God who's constantly angry at sin but that he's a God who is totally sovereign in history. And that's what you've got in chapter 10, verse 5 to 19. Take a look at chapter 10, verse 5 again. Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send them against a godless nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. The Assyrians are coming against the north. But why? If the Assyrians are like a rod, like a club, who's holding the rod? Who's holding the club? Bible says it's God. The Assyrians are this superpower are just to God like a tool, like an axe or a club that he can pick up and send and use for his purpose. Is that not what the text says? It's very sobering, isn't it? The mighty armies of Assyria, their political decisions and their leadership are ultimately under God's powerful control. When they strike Israel, they're merely the rod that expresses God's anger. They're just an axe uh, before God that he picks up and, and he, he uses to chop a sinful, arrogant nation. See, this is what the Bible tells us about God, is that he is a mighty God. And that he is a God who is actively involved in this world. 
He's not remote. He's not aloof. He's, he's a God who's involved in the events of history and he's working out his purposes to his own ends. And uh, is he picking Assyria because they're a very pious, godly nation that loves to obey God? Not at all. They don't think they're acting for God. They don't think they're fulfilling God's purposes. They're just a bloodthirsty superpower that wants to take more wealth. Look, that's what verse 7 says. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. So here's the proud boast of the Assyrian ruler. Are not my commanders all kings? As my, verse 10, as, as my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with them? Assyria is even more godless and arrogant and proud. How on earth can God use such a nation? Well, God can. He's absolutely sovereign to use whatever agency wishes to complete his purposes. Even those that live in apparent rebellion against him, who act for their own sinful purpose, yet God can actually have a far greater purpose behind those events to achieve what he wants to achieve in the world, of which they are completely oblivious. Is that not exactly what took place at the cross of Jesus Christ? That's exactly the point that Peter preached uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, he said this, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. The Jewish leaders killed Jesus to get rid of someone that they feared, that they were jealous of because of his popularity amongst the people. But behind that lawlessness and wickedness, God was at work fulfilling a plan of salvation that he was working out, that uh, he had set before the creation of the world. Now this is how big the sovereignty of God is. This is the God that we worship. A God who is constantly angry at sin. A God who is absolutely sovereign over all events. And we desperately need such a big view of God. For when we do, we will not be devastated when bad things happen or when, it, when we're living in a time where it looks like evil people are succeeding. For we know that we have a sovereign God who works all things for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we, it may not make sense to us at the time. We may not see it. But events are being played out in a way that God is fulfilling his purposes. Now, I know this generates a lot of heat and questions, but it seems to me that the claim of Isaiah is quite straightforward, that God is such a God who is sovereignly in control of events. But we should also see alongside of this that human beings are, are, are fully responsible agents. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And so the Bible presents, without any embarrassment, two things that human logic 
find hard to fit together, but the Bible puts together in its own logic that the God is fully sovereign and that we are fully accountable. All the destruction and the conquest completed by this proud king uh, were all totally of his own choosing. He had his own sinful desires of being worked out. And, and so God will fully hold this king and his army accountable for their wickedness and their proud boast. That's the point of verse 15. Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it? Will the sorer boast against him who uses it as if a rod were to yield him or lift, who lifts it up or a club brandish him who is not wood? God is saying to this proud king of Assyria, don't get too excited, you're just an axe that I use. The Lord will cut them down before they can cut off Jerusalem. When God has finished accomplishing his purpose by using Assyria as an axe, then this mighty, terrifying army will get the axe itself. That's what's saying in verse 33 of chapter 10. See the Lord, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty tree will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. And we're going to see that as we read on in Isaiah. As the Assyrians swept down and came all around Jerusalem, it looked like they were going to take Jerusalem utterly. And then in one night, God lops off the bows of Assyria. An army is decimated in a night. Now, President Roosevelt famously said in 1933 that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But I don't think that Isaiah would agree with him. When Isaiah tells the people of Jerusalem not to be afraid of the Assyrians, it is because there is an even greater person to fear, the Lord God of hosts. The problem is not fear, but that we fear the wrong things and the wrong people. We should not fear the axe. You should fear the one who wields the axe. You shouldn't fear... Uh, the things that our media gives us to worry about, we should fear the holy God whose anger against our sin is relentless. Jesus said these sobering words, and uh, I take it that Jesus is the most loving man who's ever lived, and yet he said these words, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. Fear him who after your body has been uh, killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We live in a godless culture that writes off God, that proudly wants to build its uh, empires, companies, businesses, kingdoms, for its own glory without mention of God. Is that not the world we live in today? And what Isaiah would warn us is that we're up against a holy God whose anger is relentlessly against such conceit and rebellion, whether that be a nation, a continent, or our own lives. What hope have we got against a God who's relentlessly angry against sin and is absolutely sovereign? Well, there's a wonderful thing that's in this passage. It's not only that it's about God's anger, 
and God's sovereignty, but it's about God's grace. We're all essentially proud and arrogant, deserving judgment. All of us. And the only hope we have is that we can respond to God because he's a God of grace. And that's what these final verses are about in chapter 10, verse 20, to the end of the chapter. Look back at 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down, that's Assyria, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. See, there will be survivors in the north, but it's only going to be a small remnant. But even that is a testimony to God's grace, for none deserved Mercy. The whole land was full of wickedness and vileness, Isaiah says. And yet there will be a remnant that will survive. And what's the mark of God's remnant? What is the mark of those who survive uh, the judgment of God? Well, their mark is repentance. Verse 20, they will no longer rely on other things but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The mark of God's grace is seen in a people who return to the Lord and rely upon the Lord. People who repent and believe. And so Isaiah turns to the people of Zion and he says, O my people who live in Zion... Do not be afraid of the Assyrians. And as they sit and watch the destruction of their northern neighbor in the future, Isaiah is calling on them to be a people who see the signs of the times around them, see the judgment of God being worked down in society, and take note, and in all soberness, repent of relying on those foolish things, and instead rely on God himself. This is the the great liberating truth that actually when we fear the Lord and take refuge in him, then we don't need to fear anything else. If you fear the one who actually controls all things, is this sovereign and in control. And he is your refuge. Then whatever comes to you, you don't need to fear. But the hope is found in returning to the Lord and relying upon him. Have you done that? Back to Acts chapter 2. You know, God's mighty act of salvation was done as wicked men crucified Jesus. They did it because they wanted to get him away. But you know what what was God doing in those events? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against him. God's anger against sin is relentless, and yet God sent his son to be the one who would bear that anger in our place. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's looking at that cup of God's wrath, and he knows he's going to have to drink it all, a picture of all God's wrath against us. And he drinks it in the place of sinners. So that all those who return to the Lord and rely on the salvation that he's provided in his son no longer have to fear this anger and this wrath. It is turned away. Jesus propitiates the wrath of God. He turns it aside from us upon himself. So that God is no longer angry with us. We are no longer condemned by God. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, the Bible says. Now my question is, have you returned to the Lord? Are you relying on his King, our Savior? Is he your refuge? Because if you fear him, you don't need to fear anything else. Disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee when a storm blew up. And uh, they thought they were going to drown. They'd been on that lake many times. It must have been a terrible storm. They didn't think they were going to make it. And what's Jesus doing? Well, he's asleep on the boat with his head on a cushion, says Mark. Nice little incidental detail. There was a cushion. He was sleeping on it. And so they wake him up and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? Why was Jesus sleeping? I think he was exhausted. It was a long day. He'd been teaching all day. He was absolutely exhausted. But also I wonder too whether Jesus didn't fear the storm. Because he gets up and with one word stills the wind, calms the sea. And what's the response of the disciples? They're all relaxed and peaceful and calm. No, they are terrified. Because they suddenly look at this man they just called teacher and they thought, this man is more than a teacher. They are terrified and they say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Do you you get this point? That if you fear the almighty power of God and you run to Jesus, your rescuer, you don't need to fear anything else. Last Sunday uh, was the 56th anniversary of the murder of five young American missionaries in Ecuador. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and Pete Fleming. And they went to share the gospel with the Waranu tribe in Ecuador, who had the reputation of being the most violent and ruthless tribe in the area. People said, don't go, it's incredibly dangerous. But they wanted to go and reach these people. And on the 8th of January, after having spent a day with them in seeming peace, the the people turned on them, and they were all martyred. Uh, They had a gun. They could have shot. But they knew that these people did not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they'd gone to share this good news about how you can find refuge in Jesus. And so they did not use the gun. And they were murdered. Now what incredible bravery and fearlessness to go into danger like that why would you do that well because you fear God and you know that you are right with him and therefore you do not fear anything else and what good could come out of such a thing what good could come out of these young missionaries dying well 
as events are still play, being played out, that news spurred so many into missions. There was an explosion of people wanting to go into missions when they heard the news of the, uh, of the martyrdom of these uh, Ecuadorian missionaries. And Jim Elliot's wife herself returned to live among them and share the gospel with them, and many of them are now Christians. Amazing. Amazing. And we think of that quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We go through the week and this world is shouting at us and saying, this is important, this is important, be worried about this, be worried about this. And what we want to hear from God's word today is, don't worry about the things that people worry about. Worry about God, fear God, trust God, rely on God this week. He's absolutely sovereign. He's righteous and holy. And he's a God of grace. He gave his one and only son. Turn to him. Run to him. Find refuge in him. And whatever it is that you're fearful about today, whatever you're anxious about today, when you come to Christ, you know the big things are sorted out. And he even cares about the small things as well. Turn to him today. Let's pray.